Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the U3A radio podcast with me, Nick Bailey. As we enter into spring, we're up to episode 29. And with the coronation almost upon us, we hear about a village in Kent that will give their post boxes a right royal makeover. I've made a, it's a bit wobbly, I haven't secured it properly, but that's my Auburn scepter. That's quite large, Helen. How, it must be about well, a foot tall. Well, it looks as if it's about the same size as me, but it isn't. <laughs> we learn about a word game that was invented on a greyhound bus. Mum loved word games. Um, so we were, we were playing lots of different word games, Peter, but somehow or other we ended up inventing Aileen's game. And we, we just called it five by five. We played it between us and, and we thought, oh, this is good. We're quite enjoying this and then shared it with the family. And the, and the family have played it on paper and pencil ever since. And what is face blindness? Well, it's just it's the inability to recognise other people by their faces, which is something that most people do so automatically that they never think about it. But it's a, it's a bit of the brain that doesn't work. Did you know there are 25 million dog and cat owners in the UK? And of course, each pet has its own personality. Since September, a new group has started at Hillingdon U3A in West London, which concentrates on pet psychology. It's run by Lucy Lofting, who has degrees in zoology and psychology, and has also worked with both the RSPCA and the Dogs Trust. Val Dawson asked Lucy to explain more. Pet psychology is really the study of the research that's been done, not on lab animals, but on domestic pets. So that's what we're looking at. And we're hoping to understand our own animals a lot better by looking at some of the things that come out of that research. Dogs actually see the world, if I can use the word see, through their noses, uh, which is very different from the way we as humans look at life. So a dog has an elongated snout, which houses a very complex set of organs which tell it so much about the, the smells in its environment. So a dog is happiest when it's sniffing things. And we see that with medical research dogs, with emotional support dogs, uh, even with your domestic dog going out for a walk, it wants to sniff everything. And we sometimes forget that. So if we're going to enrich our animals' lives, uh, the more sniffing they can do, the happier they're going to be, the more stimulated they're going to be. And with a cat, it's slightly different. They do have a very good sense of smell, but they have excellent hearing because they're used to listening for small rodents uh, at dawn or dusk when they're out hunting. And their ability to hear things is just amazing compared to what we can hear. So personally, I find it very comforting that if there's a noise in the night and my cat's not reacting, I know that it's perfectly safe. They can also alert me to things which I will hear in a moment or two, but haven't yet heard. And I think they know the time to the minute. Um, some years ago, when I was still working, I used to groom my cats in the garden on a Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. And one cat loved it and Snowy, the white one, didn't love it. Um, so she would stand in line hoping it wasn't her turn. But at one minute to 10, next door's cat would come walking down the garden path, knowing not only it was Saturday, but it was very nearly 10 o'clock and he'd join the queue. Uh, so, yes, their sense of timing is much more accurate than ours is. Had it always occurred to you or did somebody invite you to do it or how, how did it work? I certainly hadn't thought about it. No, I um 
I was approached in a book club uh, by one of the U3A committees and she asked me if I would do something. I'd obviously made some comment about pets or animals and she's given me a lot of support and it just grew like topsy. We must also stress that um, the animals at your U3A meeting, your group meetings, they don't go along the owners with their pets. They do leave the pets at home and just come and chat to you. That's right. Uh, I don't think we could have an assortment of dogs and cats all in the same room. However, there is a resident dog who comes down to join us at coffee break, and he's become a superstar, I think, from all the lovely photographs that have gone out in Third Age Matters. Can you tell me, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your work with the RSPCA and with the Dogs Trust. Right. Well, the Dogs Trust came up in my retirement. Um, I happen to have a background in Reiki, mainly with cancer patients. And I went along to the Dogs Trust expecting to do some dog walking, but ended up doing Reiki for their more nervous animals. So I did that for over eight years. I treated, if I can use that word, volunteering. I treated uh, two and a half thousand dogs, trying to help them to get rehomed quicker. And during lockdown, I fostered for the RSPCA with their more difficult to rehome cats. So I've had a lot of experience with hands-on and animals. I have a cat of my own. I've had cats for 35 years, I think. Can you remember all their names? Oh, absolutely. They've left their paw prints on my heart, as they say. So tell me more about how dogs also now, very much so, being used for health Uh, to improve health, aren't they? Doctors are realising that um, stroking, even stroking a dog or a cat can bring down your blood pressure, I believe. Oh, absolutely. There's quite a big programme at the Harefield Hospital, the Heart Hospital, which is nearby for us, called Hounds for Hearts. And the idea is that by stroking a dog, uh, your blood pressure goes down, the dog enjoys it, And then, of course, there's a great thing for retirees of getting out and walking your dog, meeting other dog walkers, getting the exercise. So overall, it's a very helpful thing to have when your work-life balance changes and your world is based on your home in retirement. Especially, obviously, for anybody living any older or whatever age person living alone, um, very much want to have an animal around. It makes a huge difference. I can speak personally about that as well. Um, It's just lovely to have a cat or a dog around the place. I think that's very important. Um, Companionship and the whole ethos of the work we do is to understand our animals better and so to improve that connection with our pets. Can we just go back to um, Dogs Trust again? I don't know much about that organisation. What exactly do they do? They are the largest dog rehoming organisation in the country. Um, They have about 20 centres. The London one, the West London one, is the one that I was with. The number of dogs they have in varies, but their aim is to take in dogs that need to be rehomed, quite often through bereavement of the owner or landlords not allowing pets, although the pet is already in situ, and occasionally strays, but much less so now that we have uh, microchipping. And the average dog turns around in about a month um, and they vet new owners. They make sure the dog is vaccinated and chipped and has proper veterinary treatment. So it's a much safer way of passing an animal from one home to another. Um, We all disapprove of people just putting it up as an advert because we don't know who it might be going to. 
Lucy Lofting in conversation with fellow pet lover Val Dawson. There'll be many and varied celebrations to mark the coronation, and one group has turned to crafting to make their mark. If you go down to Methan in Kent, you'll see that the local U3A postbox toppers have been busy. Joanne Watson has been finding out more from Di Parker and group leader Helen Pierce. We started off as a needlecraft group, and in 2019, we decided that it would be quite nice to do something for Christmas. So we did the post boxes and oh, the whole village loved them. And we have done that. We've put the same ones up each year on different post boxes. So <laughs> done the rounds. But after COVID, when we started up again, our numbers in the Needlecraft group had dwindled drastically. So we thought it might be nice to do a community-based project. We thought, well, the coronation's coming up. Perhaps some of the members would like to start the post boxes again. So we renamed the group. We're post box toppers. And we've got quite a nice little group going with lots of people just contributing little bits and pieces. Di, perhaps you could explain what you've been topping post boxes with. We started with a big circle of fabric or a circle of crochet. Some people um, knitted like Christmas trees, snowmen. We had one that was a complete nativity scene. We put bunting around each one mm. as well, being very careful that it didn't cover the hole for the, for the letters to go in. As we were putting them up throughout the village, so many people were commenting as we were mm. putting them up. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's lovely. And then the second year when we put them up, oh, I'm glad they're back up again. How robust are they? Because they're out in the elements. I would imagine, particularly in winter, they, they could get sort of very soggy. Well, they've been covered in snow <laughs> yes, and survived. <laughs> My figures, when I've done them, I put the stuffing in a plastic bag so that that hasn't you know retained any any moisture we take them off at the end of the well the beginning of the new year and give them a wash and then they're they're ready for the the next year yeah so they do survive quite well so the coronation that's going to be a big event across the country so what have you got lined up for that what (laughs) (laughs) well there's a thing this is a rather large king with a blue and white cloak and a crown that's going to be unmissable wherever you're going to put him he's going to be on top of one of the post boxes possibly surrounded by little crowns some other people are making a crown a large crown Uh, somebody else has made a golden carriage i've made a it's a bit wobbly i haven't secured it properly but that's my Auburn scepter. That's quite large, Helen. How, it must be about well, a foot tall. No, it looks as if it's about the same size as me, but it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's about not quite a foot, is it? Not quite a foot. But they need to be, you know, quite substantial, I think, to really have an impact. So mm-hmm. I've done the, the orb and I'm doing the scepter and I'm doing a, a cushion for them to, to rest on. Our idea was that we would we would have liked some sewing, some knitting, some crocheting, possibly some felting, as many different crafts as we we could. So they're not just knitted. What sort of level of skill do you need? Do you have to sort of find 
patterns for all these things or, or, or are you being just very personally creative? I can only follow a pattern <laughs> to, to make mine, but I know uh, certainly one or two of our group have said, oh, I've got something I can adapt for that and, you know, I can have a go at this and, and work that out, yeah. which I can't do. It's all levels, really. Yeah. Now, post boxes vary. Um, in size and and indeed in shape. So have you got a sort of main post box somewhere? We've got four post boxes in the village. Uh, Well, actually, we've got five. One is a square one. We did attempt that the first year, but it was very difficult to secure it onto the the square one. And it was right outside the local secondary school. So I think it had a little (laughs) bit of help in in shifting. (laughs) When we put them up, Di's husband comes along and he, he secures it with wire so nobody can go, you know, take them off. So if, if I was to come into Mepham, where is your main post box? There's like one main road that goes all the way through, through Mepham and all the post boxes are on that main road. We have a little social as we're doing it, really. We walk up the village and we can do three within, you know, a, a good walk and the really nice thing is the third one, there's a coffee shop very nearby. So <laughs> we'll stop for a, a well-earned coffee and then possibly walk up to the top one at the top of the village or, or just drive up there. Can you have a procession then, a sort of carriage on one post box and then the king and, and the crown on, on the other? Is that the sort of idea? Yes, yeah, so each post box will have something on it, yeah. And I think it's spread, hasn't it? Mm. I mean, there are lots of different villages in the area now that have, you know, the, these post box toppers, and some of them do an awful lot more than we, yeah, we, we have done. So they'll do seasonal ones. I think there was one for Valentine's Day with love hearts on it. Mm-hmm. And, and one with daffodils and things to yeah, mark the start yeah, of spring. Yeah. So is there a lot of competition then between villages? You know, I mean, I can imagine that your royal procession could be up against, I don't know, a Westminster Abbey in the next village. Could possibly. I'm sure they'll be doing something. I'm sure they will. It'll be interesting to see. Helen Pierce and Di Parker from Mepham U3A. One of the U3A's recent online talks was about face blindness, or prosopagnosia to give it its official name. The speaker was a member of Bexley U3A, Joe Livingston, who's lived with the condition throughout her life. And Joe has joined me now. Joe, welcome. Hello. I must say, I had never heard of faced blindness. And I think there are a lot of people at your talk who hadn't heard of it either. So can we start from basics and tell me what faced blindness is? Well, it's just, it's the inability to recognise other people by their faces, which is something that most people do so automatically that they never think about it. But it's a, it's a bit of the brain that doesn't work. And you've had this throughout your life, haven't you? Yes, it, it, it is a hereditary condition, although there are other ways of, of acquiring it. But when did you discover that you had it? About 20 years ago, when I was 60. And I read a piece in The Times um, which described my life. And that is how people very often discover it, either through an article, a radio, TV programme, Some people do realise they have a problem, and I think probably the younger generations are more likely to go online and try and discover by putting in random descriptions, and and now they will probably come up with something. But in our our age group, I would say people need some sort of prompt, because, you know, when you've lived with something for 60 years, 
that that's normal. Everyone thinks their own life is normal. But how did you manage if you couldn't recognise people's faces? With intermittent embarrassment and occasionally quite badly. Generally, you become the, the one who is always slightly behind the conversation because you don't join in until you're quite sure who, who else is there. You walk past your friends in the street because you don't know who they are. Um, so you, you generally get a reputation for being slightly something not quite right. And there are two ways people can go. One is to become quite reclusive. You know, you would never take a sort of front counter job. You head for the back room one. And the other is to be very friendly and upfront with absolutely everybody in case you know them. My daughter has it. And she, when she was young, she worked as a barmaid for some time. That was all right. She could call everybody love and darling. And it felt quite normal. But she didn't know who they were. <laughs> but if you're doing bar work or you're, well, I suppose doing a bar Serving behind a bar is not so bad, but if you were a, a, a waitress, for instance. Waitressing, terrible. I was lucky, although I didn't know it at the time. I went in as a junior library assistant in the days when everyone had a little cardboard ticket with their name on. I didn't appreciate what a help that was. <laughs> but at, at what stage did you realise something was wrong? Well, the earliest incident I can remember is when I must have been early 20s. I'd gone for a job interview. And there were not all the rules and regulations that we have now around interviewing. I was having a conversation with a dark-haired man in a dark suit, and for some reason he left the room and came back. And I thought we were continuing the conversation, but it was a different dark-haired man in a dark suit, and he didn't bother to point that out because he must have thought it was completely obvious. Uh, I didn't get the job. and But I remembered it because it was, you know, it had an impact on something I was trying to do. But I do remember that my reaction then was, oh, no, not again. So obviously this was a recurring issue. So I can't pinpoint anything further back than that. But it, it was just something I'd grown up with. So as a child, you, as far as you were concerned, you, you just uh, led life normally? Well, yes. And I, I know now fairly confidently that my mother had it. And if you get that sort of behaviour in a family, it is normal. Because a parent will behave in a certain way and the child will copy it. And neither of them know that they're doing something that isn't quite how other people respond. Now, how close does it get? I mean, for instance, did you have occasions when you didn't recognise your husband? There have been over the years. When we met, we actually met through a climbing group. Now, that was quite useful because we're student sort of age Everyone was fairly broke, which meant everyone had just the one set climbing gear. So the guy in the red anorak was always the guy in the red anorak. Also, he talked a lot. When was this condition first discovered? That's not that easy. In the genetic hereditary condition, where you are born with it and have no brain trauma, it comes from the late 90s in America. But there is an acquired version it can be caused by brain injury, sometimes after a stroke. And that has been known medically for much longer. How many people suffer from it? At a severe level where you rarely get through a day without tripping over it, it's about 2% of the general population. So one in 50, one in every other school class. Teachers mostly don't know about it. 
in this country, well over a million people are severely face blind. You say you didn't discover it until 20 years ago. So was your husband aware there was something wrong? He didn't seem surprised. I think people do know. There's a wonderful story of a woman in America who went through all these sort of, yeah, there's something not quite right, and she'd not recognise her husband, and she drove past him on the road. And They were farmers, so they'd got guns in the house. And eventually her husband, before she knew any reason for this, did say to her that he would never come into the house unexpectedly and quietly. He wouldn't take the risk because, you know, if you have an intruder on an isolated farm in America, there's probably only going to be one reaction to that. Well, I hope that never happened with your husband. But Joe Livingston, thank you very much for talking to me. A fascinating subject. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you. And for more information on face blindness, visit faceblind.org.uk. If you're a fan of Scrabble and word games in general, then you'll love Aileen's game. Ian Clark from East Suffolk U3A explained more to Peter Clift. It's a word game. Um, it's uh, played on a grid of five by five squares. Uh, originally, it was a paper and pencil game, and uh, you would play with, with two or more people. And each person in turn would give a letter and everyone would have to put the letter in the grid. Attempt is to make five letters going, five letter words going horizontally. And at the same time, five letter words going down. I have actually had a go at it. It's very interesting, isn't it? A bit frustrating. <laughs> it, it can be. Um, I, I think what a lot of people do is um, when you play it the first time, of course, the game gives you the, your opponent's letters, as it were, and you don't know what's coming. And it can be very frustrating to put an A in and then the next letter that comes up is an A. But I think a lot of people perhaps make a note of what the letters are and in the order that they come. And then when they give it another go, they can sort of anticipate what's going to happen and, and get a higher score. Now, I, I suppose everyone is familiar with uh, the famous Wordle. We do have to say other word games are available. But what, what first gave you the idea of, of Aliens game? Well, we're, we're going back to 1965, and Mum and I were in Canada, and we'd been visiting Mum's sister, and then we were going to visit her, her Uncle Fred, who lived in Cleveland, Ohio. And to get from Thunder Bay to Cleveland, Ohio is about, I think it's about 900 miles, and, and we were on a Greyhound bus, so we had a lot of... Uh, a lot of time. Um, Mum loved word games. Um, so we were, we were playing lots of different word games, Peter, but somehow or other, we ended up inventing Aileen's game. And we, we just called it five by five. We played it between us and, and we thought, oh, this is good. We're quite enjoying this. And then shared it with the family. And the, and the family have played it on paper and pencil ever since. And you mentioned Wordle because I thought Aileen's game would make a really good app, but I had no idea how to write an app. And when I sort of made um, a few sort of inquiries and Google searches and so on, I thought, oh, no, this is far too complicated. looks expensive. You have to have an account with Apple and all this sort of stuff. So I just forgot about the idea. And when I was reading about Wordle, I discovered that Wordle is not an app and it's just a website and it's written in JavaScript. And I knew just a little bit about websites and JavaScript. Not a lot, but in, enough to sort of make a very simple website. And I thought, aha, I wonder if I could make Aileen's game as a website with JavaScript. And that's what I did. There is obviously a lot of technology behind the, behind the game. 
you said it took you a long time. You, you must have some kind of background in computing or technology. Not really. No, my, my background, I was a teacher. I was in sales. I was a, a management consultant. Uh, I was a, um, a management train, trainer and eventually ended up as an, a, an online book publisher, which is where I learned some of the, the, the skills for websites and a little bit of uh, JavaScript. Yeah, but not not in the not a computer in the computer industry. Oh. <laughs> well, there's hope for us all then if you can do that and not the computer <laughs> business. How, how would you like to see it develop, and where do you see it going from from here? I've got one or two very minor uh, amendments to make to it, but uh, I, I think it's virtually there. But the next stage is to create a French version. Uh, one of my daughters is married to a Frenchman, uh, so I've got translators in the family. <laughs> And I haven't quite figured out how to do it yet. For those that, that don't know, the, the game is actually on the U3A website now, so people can go and, and join in. And there is a leaderboard, I understand, as well. There's a leaderboard built into the game, but because the, the game is free, you don't have to sign in, you don't have to give any details or anything, then, of course, the leaderboard within the game is just uh, the top scores, but, but no one knows who the top scorers are. The U3A are asking people to send in scores so that they can create a, a leaderboard and presumably put it on the U3A website with, with names. As the, the man who invented it, do you have any clues or tips you can give us? The biggest tip is to be as flexible as possible. Don't plan too far ahead. If you plan too far ahead, you can almost guarantee that the letters you want won't come and you'll get screwed. Well, there are, there's some tips there then from the, the, the man who invented the game as to how to make it slightly, slightly easier for you. Just going back a, a bit, uh, I know you said it was invented along with your mother uh, on a bus trip in, in Canada. Why, why the name Aileen? Because that's mum's name. You've named it after, after dear old mum. I have indeed. She's not with us anymore. But I mean, even in her 90s, she was extremely difficult to beat at Scrabble. I think she knew all the two letter Scrabble words and most of the three letter Scrabble words and had a knack of, of putting the Zs on the triple score. I mean, it was just uncanny. Well, it's lovely to know that uh, that mum's uh, memory lives on in, in Aileen's game, isn't it? Well, indeed it is. And and if you if you go to the game and, and have a read of the background, you'll, you'll see a picture of mum. Yes. <laughs> Ian Clark. And if you'd like to have a go yourself, just visit our website at u3a.org.uk and search for Aileen's Game. I've had several tries myself, and my highest score so far is 43, which I'm quite proud of. The trouble is I'm in danger of becoming addicted to it. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget, if you want to share something with the national U3A community, don't hesitate to let us know through communications at u3a.org.uk. My thanks to Peter Clift, Joanne Watson and Val Dawson for the interviews and also to Ella Watts for producing the podcast. Until next time, this is Nick Bailey saying goodbye.